Excellent. Okay. Uh, so we're at the, we're at figure one. That's as far as we've gotten. Yeah, we're halfway through. We're third of the way. <laughs> <laughs> as it goes. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. Tonight, we've got something different. My name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. My COI are available at pbfluids.com slash about. Tonight, we have a Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiraman. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil. I don't have any conflicts today. And another hypertension specialist, we got Jordy. Hi, I'm Jordi Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, my COIs are that I have a lot of National Institute of Health funding uh, very intimately related to this topic area with use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs and longitudinal outcomes. And I was PI of a trial of continuing versus discontinuing ACE inhibitors and ARBs um, in acute settings. So I uh, have a lot of interest in this area. Oh, the old COI as humble brag. We've seen it many times. Well done. Many, many NIH funded grants. Oh, yes. yes. It's so hard to keep track of all my NIH funded grants. I don't know what to do. Related to that, my husband provided free babysitting this morning for our infant because he knew that Lori Tomlinson is one of my research heroes. So I was so excited Excellent. to get to join today. And there you go. So we also have a special guest today. We have Lori Tomlinson. Lori, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Laurie Tomlinson. I'm an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I'm an epidemiologist in Sussex in the UK. And I was um, PI for this study that we're going to be discussing today in Brighton. And my uh, conflict of interest are non-financial, but I like controversy around ASARBs. Yeah, you've done you've done some significant work in this area. We've actually uh, highlighted some of your work on FJC. Why don't you Why don't you kind of talk about what where kind of the state of the uh, uh, the art was uh, prior to this publication? Well, this this publication is lovely in a way because it kind of tracks the whole period of time that I've been researching this topic. So if I go back to when I was a renal registrar about 10 years ago, seeing a lot of front door medicine, seeing a lot of patients coming in with acute kidney injury, and I felt like ASARBs were the devil's drugs and they were causing a lot of injury. And so I went into research really to try and make things better. But along the way, I discovered that actually that wasn't the case. And there's a huge amount of confounding in the observational research. And um, so I've, I've, I've traveled a journey around the drugs and epidemiologically, which I think this paper uh, also encompasses. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the, the trial called Stop ACE. It's a title, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on December 1st, the Renin Angiotensin System Inhibition in Advanced Chronic Kidney Disease. And this really is the follow-up. The study that made a splash was from 2010 in NDT by uh Dr. Ahmed and, uh, and Nahas, uh, it was the impact of stopping inhibitors of renin angiotensin system in patients with advanced CKD. And this was, they have a low GFR clinic and they reported on something like 50 patients where they stopped 
ACE inhibition or RAS inhibition. Their GFR popped up from 16 to 26 and then remained stable for a number of years. And it started a lot of people talking about, hey, really looking at the data, like what is the data of RAS inhibition and advanced CKD? And it was a little thin, uh, you know, not entirely absent, but uh, one of the studies that I remember was this uh, one in the New England Journal of Medicine by uh, uh, Fan Fan Hu. Uh, looking at benazapril and advanced CKD, this was a Chinese study, open label, single center, in which they stopped or continued a, uh, ACE inhibition and pretty compelling data showing improved outcomes, maintaining the ACE inhibitor all the way to starting initiation of dialysis. Uh, Swap, you, you, you had something to say there? I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it made, did make some sense, right? In, RAS inhibitors are our, you know, holy grail. We That's the only tool we had until recently, of course, in CKD. But the evidence outside diabetic nephropathy wasn't that strong. Yes, there were some trials in, in uh, proteinuric CKD. But what about non-proteinuric CKD, right? And once the GFR is close to starting dialysis, what is how much bang are you going to get for your buck by continuing ACE inhibition until the end? Uh, so, it made some plausible sense that, okay, maybe it's too late. It doesn't matter. Let's stop it and, and get a little bit of a GFR bump. It buys you some time to get your fistula in, to get your PD catheter in, to finish your transplant workup. I, I was doing that. Like, like Laurie is saying, you know, I was, I was stopping ACE inhibition uh, when the GFR was maybe not at 30, but, you know, once I started becoming uncomfortable, we would bail off. And, and again, in this trial, we are not talking about that GFR bump or dip that you see, that is the other famous paper from BMJ by Laurie, uh, which talks about that, you know, if you start an ACE inhibitor, you get a spike in the creatinine. That's a separate topic. I don't think we are dealing with that today. This is more about the, you know, advanced CKD situation where the GFR is dropping. Should you continue or not? And this is not the only research, right? There is that body of research from, especially from Sripal, Bangalore and others. Yeah, but he's, he's done a lot of research on, uh, hey, you know, is there a compelling indication for RAS inhibition uh, in, in settings? And, and outside heart failure, outside proteinuric CKD, people argue that, you know, there's nothing special uh, apart from the blood pressure uh, effect. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying, you know, there is this school of thought. Uh, saying that there is nothing magical about uh, RAS inhibition outside a couple of you know compelling indications, Jordi. Yeah, but the one caveat to that is hypertension, right? And so we'll get to this in this study, but our uh, late-stage kidney disease patients are very likely to need at least three antihypertensive medications. And when people start shying away from ACE inhibitors and ARBs, we start breaking away from the information we have defending using first-line antihypertensive agents. And so, sure, they're all, be, they're all going to be on a calcium channel blocker. They're all going to be on some diuretic, hopefully now with click, more thighs, I'd like diuretics, but at least usually they're on a loop. And then what are you going to do? You're not going to be treating these patients with an ACE inhibitor or ARB because of sort of hypothetical ghostly concerns. Uh, and that worries me because I see so many of these patients uh, admitted to the hospital on hydralazine, 25 milligrams TID, on doxazosin, 4 milligrams, 16 milligrams twice a day, things like that. You're starting to sort of do funny things with their blood pressure management and going breaking away from evidence-based practice where we do know there, that these are really fantastic and beneficial antihypertensives. Uh, any last thoughts before we dive into the methods, Laurie? Well, yeah, so this is really interesting. So I totally agree with Swap that um, the initial evidence base from which we started was really limited. So we just didn't have very good quality observational trials. We didn't have large numbers initially. If you compare that to where we are now with SGLT2 inhibitors, we've had massive trials, really robust, reported by every stratification you can imagine. 
and we we're in really confident about where we kind of can't use them and, and what the risks are. We were never in that position with ACE inhibitors. We never had that data in patients with advanced CKD. And exactly as Geordie says, we've just been uncertain about what to do in advanced CKD, probably underusing these drugs, which can be really valuable in this very sick group who need a, a lot of treatment. So, yeah, so what we see as, as clinicians is we see patients coming in through the front door. They've got acute kidney injury. They're very sick. They're hyperkalemic. They're on ACE inhibitors. We've become very wary about using them in this, in this high-risk population. So we go back and forwards. We should stop them because they cause AKI. But we also need to use them, like Geordie was saying, because they are they need additional treatment. So we've just been stuck in this uncertain position. And that's why I think the original 2010 paper that you were talking about gained such traction, because we just didn't we just didn't have enough evidence to to know how to interpret that. And and I think now, if you look at that study, you would not base a, a, a huge, well-funded clinical trial on a, an observational study of, you know, 50 patients. It just wasn't strong enough evidence, but because we were in such an uncertain position. Well, it also agreed with our priors, right? It it, it agreed with this knowledge that, oh, there's this bump in creatinine, we drop our GFR a bit, there's this increased risk of hyperkalemia. Like it fit a lot of narratives that we were already prone to agree with. Absolutely. Exactly right. And there are some better quality observational studies that have been done since, but let's come to that later after we discuss topics because they were done in the last year. Okay, hit it, Swap. Let's get, let's get some methods. So this study, the STOP-A trial was uh, done in the UK. It's a multi-center trial. It was funded by the uh, NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research and Medical Research Council, which are sort of the UK equivalent of the NIH. So, you know, no industry funding, very clear cut. They had 39 centers all across UK and patients with advanced CKD. So let's talk about the population to understand what kind of advanced CKD they mean. They needed to have patients whose GFR was less than 30. They needed to have, so stage four or five, of course, and more importantly, they needed to have a decrease in GFR of, of more than two mils per minute per 1.73 meters square per year in the last two years. So not someone, you know, coasting along with a stable GFR, but people who did have progressive CKD. And they needed to be on an ACE or an ARB or both. Uh, very few people were on both, as we shall see later, for the last six months. So again, we are trying to exclude the people who had just started on RAS inhibition and, and uh, their GFR dropped to less than 30. So stable the RAS inhibition, but unstable and progressively declining a GFR of more than two per year for the last two years. In I think that's of- a really powerful selection criteria. And I think that would be a useful thing for a lot of studies. Like these patients did particularly bad in terms of starting dialysis. And I think that is useful in trying to accrue outcomes. I thought that was a clever selection criteria. Exactly right. Uh, And the power depends on that, right? If you have patients whose GFR is stable and it remains stable, then you have no events, then you know, what's the use? Uh, So that was a smart decision. Uh, now, again, you don't see any diabetes there. So that is really good. Because that I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. What do you mean they didn't, you didn't see any diabetes? There? What, I'm, what you, in the sense, they did not have, the, it, it wasn't only diabetic nephropathy, right? Patients with diabetic nephropathy often have progressive CKD. Uh, this wasn't just diabetic nephropathy. A variety, was, a variety yeah. of etiologies, yeah. We're, exactly. Right. Like stepping the, on the results. Look at you just roll right into the results with no, <laughs> with no shame at all. Come on now. <laughs> Stick to some methods. Toes, I know, yeah. really, Jordy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was trying to make the point that, you know, a lot of the RAS inhibition trials have been in, in diabetic nephropathy. So this was kind of broad, you know, they ne- needed to include both diabetic and non-diabetic uh, nephropathy. They didn't have proteinuria, uh, which often is used as a surrogate for progressive CKD, because they didn't need to, they did have progressive CKD defined on the basis of a GFR decline. In terms of the exclusion, a couple of the interesting exclusions, if someone had uncontrolled hypertension, which was defined as a blood pressure of greater than 160 over 90, they were excluded. 
again, because uh, to Jordi's point is that, you know, these are the patients who probably need to be on the RAS inhibition. People thought it wouldn't be, uh, there wouldn't be equipoise in randomizing these patients whose BP was uncontrolled at baseline on the RAS inhibition to be randomized to, you know, withdrawing the RAS inhibition. The other uh, couple of exclusions are uh, people who had MI or stroke within the previous three months. Again, presumably because it was thought that they had a you know strong indication to be on RAS inhibition. Uh, heart failure was not an exclusion as far as I can yeah, see. Yeah, that seems unusual, right? If they had advanced heart failure, I would be very uncomfortable enrolling them in a trial where they might remove their ACE inhibition. Well, I think the, the key thing for the um, people randomizing them into the trial was they needed to have equipoise. And I think we felt there was no equipoise for people with heart failure. They needed to remain on it. So in reality, even though it might have been listed as an exclusion criteria, effectively it was one. And I just want to come back on the GFR criteria as well, which I agree um, has kind of selected this specific population, which is quite valuable. If you look at the consort diagram, there was a huge number of people who were screened who were ineligible. And that was, I think that was almost certainly a large proportion of that was down to this GFR criteria because you had to fill in a spreadsheet with all of these creatinines. And unless it literally, you know, you got the linear regression on this line or, or worse, they didn't get into the, they couldn't be randomized. And I selected a whole load of people who I thought had two mils per min year per year, and they and they didn't make it in. So it was it was really rigorous, and um, it, it's very valuable for this trial in terms of the event rate, but it's really not valuable in terms of the generalizability of the uh, results. Uh, and that's a really good point that I'm sure we'll come to again and again. And some of the observational studies aren't necessarily designed like that, right? So when when we compare RCTs to observational studies, keep that in mind. Uh, to what Laurie said. Uh, another ex- in exclusion was immune-mediated kidney disease uh, requiring specific therapy. And again, I'm not that. That's pretty standard uh, exclusion in many of these situations. So, what was the intervention? The intervention was that patients were randomized one to one to continue RAS inhibition or to discontinue them. So, in the group that RAS inhibition was continued, they were continued on whatever RAS inhibition they were. So, if they were on lisinopril, they continued on lisinopril. If they were on Perendopril, they would continue on perendopril and so on and so forth. The dose was left up to the site investigator. Uh, the choice of the agent was left up to the site investigator. In, in this sense, this is a very pragmatic study. This is not a, a pharma-funded study where you only have to use benazepril or, or placebo. And if they, have, uh, if they were randomized to be discontinued, the ACE inhibition or ARB was discontinued, of course. They were allowed to use any other antihypertensive agent. And the study it's all blood open pressure, label. It's all it was all label, open label, right? exactly. There was no blinding involved. And the uh, blood pressure target was 140 over 85, uh, which would be reasonable at that time, considering Sprint was not done yet. Uh, and of course, Sprint would exclude GFR less than 20. This was uh, less than 30. Uh, the MRAs were allowed. So people could use spironolactone if they wanted to, though I, I guess that you know, again, we'll see in the results if that was a big uh, proportion. So, spironolactone it is wasn't. RA. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> we are scared of using uh, spironolactone, but, you know, spironolactone would be appropriately so. Appropriately, appropriately so. so. With the hyperkalemia. At, at um, this GFR, yeah. It's, uh... Exactly. And, and if you were randomized to the discontinued arm, uh, the investigators could not sta- start an ACE or ARB, of course, unless, you know, everything else had been tried, all other options had been uh, ineffective or associated with intolerable side effects. Now they were followed every three months and after randomization until the for a total period of three years. As far as I know, there was no uh, GFR measurement two weeks after the discontinuation, which may be a key aspect that, uh, that we can discuss later. So it was the follow-up was every three months. So let's, uh, if people are okay with the intervention, I can talk about the endpoints, which I think are fascinating, to be honest. 
So the trial endpoint was, again, this is MDRD-175, which I think is fine. I know the trial started in the early 2010s, 2012, and the, 13, The important I guess. thing to remember about the estimated GFR equations is that when you get down to low GFRs, they're all pretty much the same. There's very exactly. little difference when you're down below 20 cc's per minute. But they're also quite imprecise in that range. So keeping that in mind, they're, they, they perform similarly and similarly badly. Exactly. They perform similarly. So it's not that the CKDAP has any advantage, right? People in the chat, this came up. Why didn't they use CKDAP? It came out in 2009. But well, I don't think it was rolled out everywhere to all EMRs. I don't know about UK. And, uh, and in their analysis, they ran through every possible equation and showed that the data just didn't change. It didn't make a difference. And I think this is something that people... Like I'm happy to switch eGFR calculations, but I don't think it's one of these things that it caused any systematic changes in what we know about nephrology. When you're exactly. using a blunt oh. tool, switching from one blunt tool to another, is, is that really <laughs> like using a mallet versus using a bludgeoning uh, tool? Is that really going to make that big of a difference? Exactly. Like a true D and D player, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, I'll go with it. <laughs> um, so, uh, but the the apart from the use of the GFR equation itself, the endpoint was the difference in GFR between the intervention and the standard group. It wasn't it wasn't doubling of creatinine. It wasn't a forty percent loss of GFR. Uh, it was the difference in GFR. And why it matters is that if someone started on dialysis. What do you do with that, right? And, and once you have a patient population, which is less than 30, a lot of people are going to start dialysis. So what GFR should you use for someone who started dialysis? They use the last GFR before they started dialysis, or maybe at the time they started dialysis, and then they were censored, right? Because again, you cannot calculate the GFR once someone's on, on dialysis. So that's kind of an interesting thing that you should keep in mind, because if a lot of people start on dialysis in one group versus the other, and and let's say you start GF everyone on dialysis you at a GFR of fifteen, right? Yeah. You lose that differentiation, right? If if uh, if one group has more dialysis than the other, which again, you know, this is all hindsight bias. The investigators didn't realize maybe that this would be happening, but uh, they chose this change in GFR, which again, looking at the AMAT trial, AMAT study, which is what this was based on, they expected to see a big GFR difference, right? So uh, there were a bunch of secondary outpoints. So the time to development of ESKD which was defined by um, uh, dialysis start. And that was, again, based on the investigator. There weren't any defined criteria saying, hey, you have to start someone on dialysis at this GFR or if this happens. You know, whenever Laurie decides that this patient needs dialysis, she would have started a patient who was in the trial on dialysis. So it was either that or, you know, uh, conservative care, of course, as well. Uh, so whoever that endpoint of end-stage kidney disease was locally relevant. Uh, there was a composite of a decrease in GFR of less than 50% or development of ESKD and initiation of renal replacement therapy. That was a secondary outcome. Any cause hospitalization, blood pressure measures, uh, quality of life using the KDQOL36 uh, uh, short form survey, a bunch of other, you know, cardiovascular events, exercise capacity, death, hemoglobins, urinary protein to creatinine ratio. They, they were the secondary outcomes. Laurie, were you involved in writing this protocol up at all? No. No. Would you would you and, have done anything differently? Yeah. What would you have done differently? <laughs> I think I think you're right. So there's a lot of hindsight bias, and what could we have done better and differently um, if we knew what we knew now? Um, the, the question is always, you know, is a is a open label randomized trial of cessation the best way to have addressed this, or 
you know, if we had unlimited resources, should we have gone and just done a, a new trial of initiation or or you know an active comparator trial in patients with advanced CKD, which would have given us a whole host of data in addition to um, something ar- around around what what we have here about around you know safety and so on. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't have known what to have done differently at the time if I'd been writing this protocol. Was there I any would've... thought about? Oh, sorry. No, no, please, Joy. I was just curious if there was any uh, thought about blinding the endpoints, like doing it, doing one of the blinded endpoint adjudication styles, even because I know that some people are worried that there might have been like some bias because some of the um, endpoints were reported by the providers caring for these patients who are intimately involved with every little decision about whether to continue or stop the meds. Even like the threshold of when you sort of consider end stage kidney disease and somebody who was referred for palliative care. And so, since some of those are like sort of very intimate decisions, I think is that something that ever came up or was ever considered, or is it just because it was such a large trial and required so much bandwidth of so many different centers, there just wasn't the capacity for that? So I I wasn't involved in the trial setup at all. I was simply a, a you know jobbing PI at the site. So I I have no idea of the decisions that went into it. But I totally agree with what you say. And one of my concerns was that it was, it was around bias and that there, what we would see was a big increase in AKI in the continuing arm because people were being admitted with AKI and people obviously knew which, which arm they were still in. And because of the very strong prior belief that AKI was due to ASAB, that we would see this result simply due to observer bias. Uh, yeah, so I, th- I agree with you. It's a real worry. Uh, so far, that hasn't come out in the in the results so far, but it's a problem. One of my concerns is patients on you know two and a half milligrams of benazapril three times a week. Oh, they're in the ACE group, right? Like when you see no difference between these arms, and boy, the no difference between these arms was pretty extensive. No matter how you cut this data, I, I know Joy, I'm stepping, stepping on my toes. I am stepping on you, <laughs> but but. If I were to redesign the study, I would put a threshold and I would say, Hey, if you're going to, if we're going to call it Benaz, if we're going to call you on a, a RAS inhibition, it needs to be call it 20 milligrams daily, something, something reasonable so that we get, we, we're really seeing, we're seeing effect. Yeah. And these are some of the choices that people have to do as trialists, right? You don't have, you know, multi-million dollar funded by, you know, who, uh, so. We are kind of on a shoestring budget. Many of these places are making a loss and running the trial out of their goodwill. Uh, so these these choices are often uh, based on that. And the primary outcome, you know, it was GFR. It's pretty objective, though you could argue, you know, when you start dialysis, and if you're censoring at that point, that part is the, the subjective element. Anyway, so we, picked, um, we picked a lot of that up. I, those concerns are important, but they are picked up in the secondary outcomes, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Swap, so you're right. It was expensive trial. It took a lot of bandwidth, I think Geordie said a minute ago, but that was for 440 patients. I mean, it's an astonishing investment of money for a relatively limited research return. If we knew what we knew now, what would we do differently? We might not choose to spend the money in that way. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll come to in the, in the discussion, but you know, this trial does answer the question uh, it set out to answer. The, the power uh, was based on, you know, again, the... <laughs> I, I'm not done with Does the analysis. It? Come on. Does it? Does it? <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's come to it at the end. Um, so the the uh, outcome was, it wasn't change in GFR. It was GFR, difference in GFR between arms at the end of three years. And they uh, it was powered for a between group difference of five. Uh, and again, five seemed pretty conservative based on the AMED study saying, of course, we'll get five. Uh, and they went you know, with an expected loss of follow-up of 20%. Uh, and, and again, taking a big standard deviation of 16 into account. So, you know, it seemed to be powered pretty reasonably 
for what we knew at that time about the uh, expected effect size. And yeah, again, that's uh, I, again the the analysis of uh, seems pretty legit. A repeated measure mixed effect linear regression model. Uh, it's it's pretty standard. Uh, I don't see anything to uh, bore our listeners with, uh, especially well, there, Joel. There was uh, there was one thing that we had talked. We've talked about in a number of other podcasts about adjusting the results for baseline character baseline characteristics, which they did. And we've been talking about this is something that increases the power, allows you to get by with fewer patients. And I like that they were able to do that and able to actually draw at least some, possibly some conclusions from uh, 40%. Exactly. So, so what Joel is talking about is that they're not measuring the difference from baseline necessarily because some people, you know, and that's what the AMED study did. They, they look at baseline, they look at it within the same group, uh, say, oh, you know, your GFR was 20, you ended up with 25 in this group. And in this group, you started with 25 and you ended up with 35 or whatever, you know. And you measure the difference from baseline to the end. This is comparing between groups at the end and you adjust for baseline, you know, and, and Frank Harrell has been, you know, talking forever on Twitter about this issue. Uh, but all the biostatisticians, this is how they how they deal with it, uh, is to take the final values, compare between groups and adjust it for baseline. And that's what was done. So it is pretty legit. I'm done. Joel. Excellent. Well done. Well put together. Very quick. Jordy, hit us with some results. So the group screened an impressive over 17,000 patients between yeah, July you talk about the cost. You, know, you say that it costs a lot and it was only 400 patients enrolled. But when you see they screened 17,000, you're like, oh, tremendous amount of work. Exactly. And that's why no one faults the group for what this like sample size was. I think those of us who've done research in dialysis patients and who think about how important it was to really carefully select this cohort understand that this cohort needed to be carefully selected and how critical that was. And the group clearly did their diligence on that. Uh, and so, yeah, out of 17,000 initial screen patients between 2014 and 2018, so luckily pre-COVID, these uh, 1,200 patients were invited to participate and ultimately 411 patients. So about a third of them were randomized. The people who ended up not being randomized. Oh, go ahead, Swap. Yeah, so so the 17,000 to 1,200, I understand. Like Laurie was saying, many of them maybe had a slower GFR decline and so on. But from the 1,200 to 400 step, uh, they say... About 120 were excluded because they weren't interested or, or the investigator thought, uh, you know, you couldn't stop their ass inhibition, which is fine. About 133, they didn't give a reason. But 545 had other reasons, which is kind of a large chunk of change, right? Half the patient had other reasons. And, and I, I couldn't see anything more about that other reason. Does anyone have any speculations? Like, you know, people refused to be part of the study. Uh, the investigator didn't want them to be on ACE inhibitor, but they were otherwise eligible. Why weren't they included? What could it be? Yeah, I don't have any insight. All, all the patients that I uh, had turned down got turned down prior to that at the GFR stage. So once someone has made it through that process, why they would then agree not to be randomized, I don't, I don't know. But I agree with you. It's a lot of patients. I'm going to jump in because I was about to go down that rabbit hole and Swapnall jumped in. <laughs> um, and so this is helpful, Lori, to hear. And I think it comes down to the fact that Lori is somebody who has a great deal of humility and sort of went into this probably talking to her patients very thoughtfully about the pros and cons, probably pre-selected a group of patients that were really appropriate for the study. Whereas I will say from my experience, at least from our hospitalization studies with discontinuing versus continuing ACE inhibitors and ARBs, there was a lot of provider bias involved, and it was a lot of wrestling with providers to convince people that their patients could appropriately be managed in one arm or the other based on their preconceived notions, and many of the providers weren't willing to let their patients participate. 
And it wasn't often the nephrologist or the person who was the primary person managing the patient. It was often some primary care provider that hadn't been involved in any of this this decision-making or cardiologist that hadn't been involved that was really worried about the risk of hyperkalemia that counseled the patient, uh, letting them know that this was an exceptionally high risk and that they shouldn't consider being in this because they would want to be able to have control. And so at least from my perspective, I had a lot of trouble enrolling people in a continuation versus discontinuation of base inhibitor ARBs um, when it wasn't my personal patients, when it wasn't people that I was the one counseling who knew me on a one-to-one basis. Exactly. I mean, again, I'm not say pointing that as a limitation. It's not at all unusual. Uh, what Jordy's saying is that you know you get you get to randomize only a third of the patient who are eligible. That's that's very standard. It's very common to have that experience. It's unusual if you are able to. You know, you're very lucky or fortunate, or, or you know, maybe the consent process is different, which is when you you are able to get more than a third. So this is absolutely understandable. Uh, it, it again goes back to the whole generalizability point that I'm sure we'll come back to later. Yeah, totally agree, Sopnal. Laurie, anything else that you had to add to that? No. Yeah, I, I well, think I will it, tell you I, that I was reading the supplement as I always <laughs> do. Okay, because I am a, and so on page. Four, You're a convert. There is, you know, the, the convert uh, is the zealot. I have strong. I have strong opinions loosely held. Is what my is, is the way I go, and so this is another strong opinion that is now flipped because they're sleuthly helped, but they don't address this other group. That's what I was looking for. when they talk, Page four is all about the uh, the, con- the concert figure. Uh, but they, they do mention, which I thought was interesting, is just how much this idea of stopping ACE inhibitors and advanced CKD had filtered in. They say that uh, they were looking at this report on the Swedish registry of people with uh, chronic kidney disease and that of interest, 15% of the patients receiving RAS inhibitors for more than 80% of the time discontinued RAS inhibition within six months of their first documented GFR of less than 30. So that, you know, just GFRs of less than 30, you're getting 15% of people dropping off. No mention of this being hyperkalemic induced. And presumably it was just GFR related. So it's kind of, it is interesting how, how much this had, had filtered in or yeah, not I mean, interesting. I don't know. You know. <laughs> Anecdotally, I don't know how, how much others have experienced this. I've experienced non-nephrologist providers very frequently discontinuing my patients' ACE inhibitors and ARBs, writing in their notes saying due to concern for their kidney disease. Uh, I think that there is still a very much a preconceived notion in many people that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are harmful to the kidney and that if they are not being completely like slammed over the head by their nephrologist that this needs to be continued, that this can very easily be stopped by other providers too based off of that. So it's on the rise among nephrologists again. It's it's really depressing. I had to point out in our grand round recently that the uh, the registrar presenting had called them nephrotoxic in front of all of the non-medical. Oh my gosh. I know. I was cringing. Where is Charlie Thompson? Every time we see a patient with acute kidney injury, we reinforce that by immediately stopping the ACE inhibition. And you know, not that we have any data to do that, but it is in fact it is in fact a measure of quality. Even though we don't have data to support the that process, you know, when when people look at, well, how good are you doing at taking care of AKI? Did you stop the ACE inhibitors? Why are we doing that? That's it. I, and I want to emphasize, even though I pretend that I'm all high muddy, I stop them also. <laughs> you know, I do. I'm worried about the hyperkalemia. I want to get it. I, you know, in, it largely we're being consulted as the sheriff of creatinine, and our job is not to fix the patient, but to fix the creatinine. And exactly, exactly. We need to embrace permissive hypercreatinemia. We do. We do. Or therapeutic hypercreatinemia, like upon Even. starting an ACE inhibitor or ARB or upon starting an SGLT2 inhibitor. Therapeutic mm, yes. hypercreatinemia. I like that. 
So we uh, we had 411 people ended up be- being randomized, 206 in the discontinuation arm and 205 in the continuation arm. Out of the people in the continuation arm, there were two withdrawals, one due to loss to follow-up. The other one was, um, int- it sounds like they were more intentionally withdrawn. So in the end, ultimately, the final group uh, was 206 who underwent their baseline EGFR evaluation and 200 in the uh, discontinuation arm and 203 who had their baseline EGFR evaluation in the continuation arm. Then at the end of the study, we ended up again similarly having very similar amounts of people who remained in the study. For the final um, measurements at 36 months at least, we had 165 people in the discontinuation arm and 165 people in the continuation arm. Um, so that's pretty great. It really suggests to us this randomization did a very good job of, uh, of giving us quite similar groups across the board. So then in terms of the baseline characteristics of those people who, met, who got to randomization and got their initial measurements, the median age at baseline was 63, so looks a lot like our patients uh, who are in this sort of situation. Uh, median EGFR at baseline was 18 ml per minute, and um, about 29% uh, had a baseline EGFR that was less than 15. There were 68% men, and there were only about 15% of patients that were non-white. And among the white participants, it's important to note that these were just about all British white participants. There were a handful of Irish white participants <laughs> that were called out separately, but really not uh, other European white. And then um, otherwise, the median you, uh, urine protein creatinine ratio at baseline um, was about 1,000 milligrams per gram. 17% of patients had some sort of prior major adverse cardiovascular event um, at baseline. Only about 4% had had prior congestive heart failure, which we'd mentioned. There were no ejection fractions reported. I think most of us presume these people were most likely preserved ejection fraction patients, though, that were still included since um, there was sort of the self-selection of excluding individuals with congestive heart failure, even though it wasn't a formal exclusion criteria, as Laurie had mentioned before. About 37% of people had diabetes. And then among the causes of kidney disease, of chronic kidney disease that are in Table 1, uh, about 21 percent were labeled as having diabetic nephropathy in the overall group. And then primary or secondary glomerulonephritis was the other common cause, about 22% in the discontinuation arm and about uh, 15% in the continuation arm. And then also ADPKD was the other very common source, a group that's often actually excluded from any kidney trials. Yeah. So I was a little bit surprised. I expected, you know, with this 2ML per year loss of GFR that was yeah. proposed. I expected to see a lot of diabetic nephropathy and if not, a lot of GN. So again, yes, diabetic nephropathy is 22, 21%. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and GN was about 22, uh, 15, 22%. Um, they excluded patients that were on right uh, were getting therapy for GN. Immune-mediated, right? yeah. Immune-mediated yeah. therapies, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, but I gonna... so I would have expected a lot of diabetic nephropathy, and I was surprised it wasn't so much. Uh, and and I wouldn't have expected, you know, prenatal vascular disease. Or it looks ADPKD. very different than my clinic. Yeah, it, it looks too. very different than my clinic. I have it's all diabetic and hypertensive in my clinic. Lori, is this more tip? Is this typical for your patients, or does this look also different to you? I think you're right that there's an underrepresentation of diabetic nephropathy, and I think that comes down to the therapeutic equipoise question. I think that clinicians ultimately they just didn't have the substantial people really continue to believe that ACIO were, were beneficial in heavily proteinuric diabetic patients at this level, so they just didn't get referred in. So I think that was that was the key thing. And I also wanted to come back to the ethnicity question because um, yeah. the UK is is different to the rest of the world in that we still have this algorithm driven by ethnicity for the treatment of hypertension. And so people who have 
uh, Black Afro-Caribbean background don't get prioritized onto ASABs in the UK. And they kind of progress down their GFR trajectory without ever getting onto it. So I think they were probably just wow. less likely to come in on an ASAB and therefore just weren't eligible. So has that, uh, again, I don't want to digress this completely, derail this conversation completely. Uh, I know you have discussed this before. Is that changing now, the the uh, NICE guidelines? Uh, oh, that's a that's a, a deep and profound question that I don't know the answer to. But um, okay. I've, I've tried my best to provide evidence of why it should change. Um, okay. We shall see whether it does or not. And I, I want to make it clear, the ASK trial definitively answered that these drugs slow progression of kidney disease in African-Americans. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no, no equipoise there. Black patients should be getting these drugs. Black Lottie, agrees, Lottie agrees with that, I think, but the NICE guidelines don't say that. No, I, I just well, want to... Yeah. It's, 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 just, it's the overlap, isn't it, in, in, in indications. So a number of uh, people of Afro-Caribbean backgrounds will begin their GFR trajectory decline just simply with hypertension before they get ever get into the proteinuric rapidly declining kidney disease phase and at that stage because of the way the uk guidelines are set up they won't they won't go on to an asab so it's just it, it, i think it's just to do with the fact they just it's still widely perceived that the drugs are less effective for the treatment of hypertension in african patients in in england so they are preferentially given diuretics and rather CCBs, than ras yeah. inhibitors and ccbs okay got it and then the other hey, Joe, you look gobsmacked. <laughs> can, can I jump in, Joe? Is this just yeah, so people are yeah, aware? Please. So this is based off of most likely, I'm presuming, um, post hoc analyses of all hat that had suggested that people who are self-reported black background um, ha- are less likely to develop stroke if they receive a calcium channel blocker or a thiazide diuretic first. However, this has now been um, really, really thought to be quite controversial. And a lot of folks, especially in the US, are really not ascribing to this any longer for several reasons, particularly because this was probably heavily confounded by a lot of um, uh, social determinants of health that weren't able to be adequately addressed in all hat, like that they just weren't um, part of what the data was collected back then. Um, and several other factors, but there's no known biologic reason yet, at wow. least that we're oh. aware of. However, Lori can well, jump so in. It, it predates all that by quite a long way. So oh, really? There was a, yeah, so there was a very um, strong belief from some senior investigators in the UK, uh, in specialists in hypertension, that there was a specific phenotype in African-American or well, African-Caribbean um, people with low renin salt sensitive hypertension that was not okay. uh, it was much less sensitive to ACE, ARB and, and beta blockade and so on. And there was a rotational trial done in the UK, which seemed to support that. And there was also a rotational trial prior to that in maybe early 90s. It was reported in NEGM where they divided people up into black, white, old, young, old, and uh, they rotated drugs. Um, and, and again, it is not the quality of evidence that we would use to direct clinical care today but it has fed into the uk algorithm which has been sustained ever since and, and, and that, then, including including with all the hat data thank you that's then, real, i didn't know about that and then lastly the ask trial i want to just be just remind people that was non-diabetics only right and then, so just, I'm going to just take a quick, very important side note, though, that now we're really working hard to get away from this because a lot of this runs into many hairy areas, including the fact that the definition of race in itself is very problematic and mm-hmm. can mean very, very different things. Many of these people, can, many people can be mixed race. Many people can be not necessarily defined by their race biologically. This is just a social construct in terms mm-hmm. of how race is being used in these situations. And it should not be used as a biological parameter. And 
And so I think a lot now we're expecting much more of our researchers and pushing really hard for people to think a lot more deeply about potential biological explanations or social explanations for when we see these differences rather than just accepting it at face values. So this is going to get better moving forward, but it's unfortunate that it's had a lot of impact on people's lives. One of the other uh, interesting things about the selection criteria is that requiring this two milliliters per minute per year loss of GFR, women tend to progress their CKD slower than men. And this may be part of the reason they got two-thirds men and only one-third women enrolled in this trial. Yep. Quite possible. Great point. And the, the blood pressure was about 136 over 77. Um, again, I guess the exclusion of 160 over 90, anyone who had a blood pressure of over 160 by 90 is what led to this kind of so-so blood pressure, which is, again, not bad. It is, that target was 140.85. Yeah. For advanced CKD like this, uh, you know. It's, it's pretty a pretty good. good blood pressure. Yeah. And then, as we mentioned earlier, most of our patients require many antihypertensive medications, and uh, almost 60% of people were on at least three antihypertensive medications, if not quite more. Exactly right. Are we, so, can we put table one to death? Are we done with that? <laughs> <laughs> the most important part of the study. Yeah. Figure one and table one. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we, can, we can let it go on rest. So... Next, we'll uh, go on to the primary endpoint. Uh, so at three years, uh, the least squares, meaning GFR, in the continuation group was 12.6, and in the discontinuation group was 13.3. So that was not clinically or statistically significantly different. Yeah. So, so again, let's look at the figure one a little bit more, right? So not figure one, sorry, figure 2A. Sorry, uh, I meant this figure 2A, the, the primary outcome. The thing that you don't see is, uh, is the big bump up in GFR that was described by Ahmed and that people talk about, right? I stopped the ACE inhibitor. Oh, the creatinine goes down, right? We don't see that here. Uh, any any speculation? So my, again, my speculation is that they, what we what we see in clinical practice is that we stop the ACE inhibition and the creatinine goes down is, you know, there's a lot of selection bias and recall bias, right? We don't remember the patients in whom the kidney function doesn't improve. We only remember the situations where we do something and, you know, good things happen. And we forget the situations where good things don't happen. So there's a lot of recall bias there. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that here they measured the GFR at three months and not like two weeks. So it's possible there is some, you know, noisy things that happen at two weeks that are missed when you're actually saying, hey, let all that settle down and let's look at three-month GFR. Does that make I think sense? That's a great, I think that's a great point. I think that you probably might have some initial boost that really can help to support your priors, uh, to use Joel's wording. Uh, and then once you actually give it some time to reach some uh, equipoise, you see uh, that it that all comes out in the wash. Yeah, it's also just a big regression to the mean question, isn't it? So in the original observational data, presumably there was a reason why we suddenly stopped ACE inhibitors. I mean, you know, they didn't really have like a randomized period where they just stopped people all at the same period in time. Something had happened. They stopped the ACE inhibitor and, you know, it was an AKI. A lot of people just spontaneously got better. Um, and here you're not doing that. Everyone is, you know, adhering to clinical trial rules and they're all being stopped at an objective period in time. So you just don't see that same difference. The drugs don't well, actually. Why, make why that do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this figure 2A. Why does the GFR go up a little bit in the people that are continued on drugs, right? No interventions made here. And three months later, their GFR looks significantly better, right? No. Is it significantly better? Uh, no, not significantly. Well, yeah, it is a, it, it, it is a measurably small, better. No, it's still, that's better. like 0.3 difference. Exactly. Less than that, but, maybe. Yeah, but you're thinking about the time difference between point zero time zero and three months, aren't you? Yeah, but yeah. zero point three yeah. months for the people that were continuing on their ACE inhibition, it's definitely higher. 
Oh, I see what you're well, saying. Well, they've, they've gone into the trial, haven't they? So the clinicians have picked up that these people are having a d- drop in GFR and they've ticked the box at that period in time. But actually, they probably weren't having an equally progressive two mils per, per minute per year. Um, All right. right. There's, some, there's some regression to mean again. Yeah. There's regression to the mean. It's regression to mean. Untreated. Yeah, that's a good point. Regression to mean. That's why you do trials. I mean, you've identified the person in clinic because of their drop in GFR, but some of those people will spontaneously get better anyway. Right. Yeah, it's to make AI. And that's why, and, and again, between something. the groups, both the groups go up, right? Which which tells you it's a regression to mean. If it was only one group, then yeah, okay, there is some systematic issue going on there. Really good point. But even so, it's really, it's very small. It's a very tiny. It's very like, tiny. It's less, yeah. one, it's less than one ML per yeah. minute per yeah. 1.73 meter squared. This isn't what we consider even within the yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. ladder. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very small. Yeah, primary outcome, no difference, right? No primary controversy. Outcome, no difference, exactly. And so figure 2B is the primary outcome divided into all of the pre-specified subgroups, which completely corresponded with what we saw in figure 2A. Across every way you cut it, there is no difference. If you look across different types of diabetes or no diabetes, you see no difference. If you look across different levels of baseline blood pressure, you see no difference. Different ages, less than 65 or greater than or equal to 65, you see no difference. Different levels of baseline proteinuria, you see no difference. And different levels of baseline EGFR of less than 15 or greater than or equal to 15, you see absolutely no significant difference, both clinically and statistically. So despite the lack of equipoise that people had, you know, even if you have diabetes, even if you have proteinuria, it doesn't matter whether you continue or discontinue. And then figures 2C uh, is those people who dropped out, the people who ended up not getting to that three-year EGFR because couldn't measure their EGFR, they were now on dialysis or some sort of renal replacement therapy, um, or had met end-stage kidney disease by another definition such as palliative referral. Uh, and in that group, we, we similarly, we found no significant difference, but we did see that there were more people in the discontinuation group compared to the continuation group just subjectively. So there were 62% of people in the discontinuation group met end-stage kidney disease or renal replacement therapy. Whereas 56% of people in the continuation group met it. But this hazard ratio was 1.28 with a confidence interval that crossed one. Like cross, just crossed one, 0.99. Just barely. barely. (laughs) 0.99 to 1.65. But again, suggesting that continuation was associated with a slightly reduced uh, risk of dialysis. You know, so the opposite of what the investigators had proposed. It's funny, looking at that Kaplan-Meier curve, it looks like the separation between the groups the, the lines are completely parallel, except for in yeah. those first nine months. Whatever it was, whatever if there is a difference there, it seems to be manifest very quickly, and then there's stability after that. Just eyeballing it. Yeah. Then it comes back to you know, is that would a composite of dialysis and GFR loss? You know, would that have been perhaps a better choice? Again, in hindsight, it's that we lost this information, right? Like that people are starting dialysis. That's bad. And and that's lost in the primary outcome. And, but it's also just a trend, right? And you would have yeah. probably needed, because it is a binary outcome, you would have needed quite a bit more people to reach that statistical power. We saw how hard it was for them to go through 17,000 patients to identify these 411 people that met criteria. Um, imagine how many more we would need for that binary out- outcome of end stage yeah. kidney disease alone. I don't think it's actually that many more because there were a lot of events, um, but it's still it still requires more power to see a statistically significant difference. But we do see that there's that trend. So I think we can sort of take away with it how we want to interpret that. 
Right. Yeah, I I put the um kind of a, a, a typical patient into the Tangri uh, kidney failure risk equation, and so I put in a male, sixty three year old, non North American, seven hundred milligrams per gram uh, albuminuria, and that comes out with a twenty seven percent risk of kidney failure, and they were at seventy percent at at uh, at three years, but way higher, way higher, and I, I just I think it just goes back to how powerful. The fact that they selected for patients that had progressive kidney failure. That's yeah. slope. This is why um, dynamic prediction is sort of more useful, I think, than static prediction. Um, and so there's some newer work being done in that space, but it's very hard to develop dynamic prediction models. Um, I'm not a huge fan of static prediction models because things change day to day. So dynamic refers to the fact that, you know, what Jordi is referring to is that you're not using one data point, you're using more than one data point, right? You you uh, you have someone with a GFR of 30, and then six months later, you see them, their GFR is 25 versus 20. I'm sure that means something different, right? You shouldn't use the 30. You should then use the person the, who's, whose GFR is 30 today and was 32 two years ago, the last time you measured right. it. Yeah, exactly. But there's a lot more in table two. Yes. Table two. So. <laughs> Um, so we, the composite outcome, uh, there was another secondary outcome that was this composite of end-stage kidney disease replacement therapy or uh, a decrease in EGFR by more than 50%. That occurred, again, similarly, and there were more of these events in the discontinuation arm, 68% of people in the discontinuation arm versus fewer events, 63% in the continuation group. But similarly, the adjusted uh, risk difference or risk ratio really wasn't significantly different. And this one was further away from one in terms of passing one. Uh, so this is a, a risk ratio of 1.07 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.94 to 1.22. So at this point, we're seeing pretty more, a little more confidently that there was no difference between the groups, at least with the composite. Uh, and similar numbers were seen in, again in table two, as Swap was alluding to. If you look across all of these secondary endpoints, pretty much everything was very similar in terms of all-cause hospitalizations, in terms of death between the two groups. The only thing that that we really see any kind of clinically sort of signals, clinically different signal um, is really in the number of cardiovascular events, but this was an adverse event. So you're not looking at statistical differences. Really, when you're looking at adverse events, you're just reporting the differences in numbers because this wasn't a formal endpoint. Um, but they did see that there were 108 cardiovascular events in the discontinuation group and that there were 88 cardiovascular events in the continuation group. Uh, so I think clinically, we sort of can can judge from that 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 looks quite quite interestingly different exactly right so rat inhibition may have a benefit even if they don't seem to have a very clear-cut renal benefit unless you look at the you know 0.99 to 1.65 uh, as being positive uh, there seems to be something also in the cardiovascular that perhaps yeah. there are fewer cardiovascular events if you continue rat inhibition which makes sense uh, from the science leads yeah. us on to the observational study when exactly are we going to get right. to that yeah, maybe this is a, is this a good time? Uh, is there anything else in the results we want to talk about? Um. The only thing is uh, the blood pressure control was poorer um, in the first 15 months of the trial in the discontinuation group. So not surprisingly, you stop a first-line antihypertensive medication, it's a little harder to control blood pressure. Um, the authors thought that this was um, just, it, it just took some time for them to reach equipoise across the groups for blood pressure control, which is understandable because you're now 
kind of grabbing for these fourth, fifth, sixth line agents. So that that's really the only thing. Um, and we mentioned earlier at the beginning, I forgot to go into this. It's supplemental table three, I think, is the medications at baseline. Um, Joel had asked how many people were on um, spironolactone at baseline, and it was in the single digits. Uh, there were two people in one in the discontinuation arm. There were zero people in the continuation arm that were on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist at baseline. Similarly, potassium sparing diuretics were quite sparsely used. There was one in the discontinuation arm and two in the continuation arm. Uh, so those were not being used very often. We don't have information that I saw in the supplement on whether these were added uh, instead of ACE inhibitors or ARBs, uh, or at least I, I, I hadn't seen that reported. Um, but I, I, I'm curious and sort of interested in Lori's uh, experience as to whether that was. And then I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts on the observational data. Uh, well, just just to talk about the blood pressure, it's really difficult because everyone has their own biases about blood pressure, don't they? They have their own concerns. And so I deliberately didn't start anything affecting the renin angiotensin system in people who had been randomized to stop. But equally, I probably had a slightly higher threshold for reinitiating additional antihypertensives because there's nothing le good left to give. Like you were saying earlier about people coming in on hydralazine and, you know, I just hate all of the distal end of the antihypertensives. They're all really dreadful. So I that you know i'm not surprised there was a blood pressure difference between the arms uh before we go into the observation studies can i ask about hyperkalemia because we didn't see much of a hyperkalemia signal here um was there a, again i presume that the newer potassium binding agents like pateromer and szc are not were not available then in the uk was there any use of k binders uh because one would expect that, you know, as you're approaching dialysis and you're containing RAS inhibition, there would be hyperkalemia. Sorry, Jordan. Oh, I failed. I didn't actually state what the hyperkalemia events were. So, uh, so there were actually only six hyperkalemia events reported just for to take a step wow. back for Swak's comment. Um, two were in the discontinuation arm, four were in the continuation arm. And so we'll, I'll let Lori answer. Yeah, again, I can't speak for the other centers, but I think there's um, generally low use of the potassium controlling agents in the UK. Uh, still at the moment. Um, and I think that this is a cell-selected bunch. By the time they've already got to their GFRs below 30, you're not running into potassium problems. You're you know, happy to continue their ACE inhibitors longer term. So these are not the type 2 diabetics with type 4 RTA. These are people who have got reasonable potassiums anyway. So yeah, I wouldn't have perceived it as much of a problem as it is in the broader population. Right. The other interesting data that I that is is in um, S twenty, which is the uh, proteinuria data. <laughs> you're just you're oh, just flexing. Wow. You're just uh, flexing is, your supplement. I want uh, I, I, mean, I to point out that remember these these groups were equal with proteinuria just under right around a gram at time zero, and at three months the people that stopped were up to about twenty four hundred milligrams of of proteinuria. Like it's it the difference in proteinuria is so stark and so fast, way way faster than I would have expected. And Certainly, some of that was blood pressure, but that's an impressive delta. And of course, over time, it, it seems to converge. I think as people get censored, I would imagine as people get censored, the worst proteinuria patients go on dialysis and get censored. Exactly. So, so let's talk about the observational data now. One of the really nice studies that I've seen, and I know there may be more, is from uh, Ed Fu uh, uh, and others. I think Laurie's is uh, was one of his guides when this uh, was done. Uh, they they use this registry from Sweden. 
And Sweden is like the big brother, I think, where everyone is followed from their birth until the death and they have all the data in, you know, one giant registry. And no uh, one so, moves out of Sweden. And, and, and people usually don't move out of Sweden, right? It's such a nice place to live. So they, this was published in JSON uh, a year, uh, sorry, now two years ago uh, or so. And they looked at uh, a similar population. They looked at patients in whom RAS inhibition was stopped versus it was continued. And, and unlike the observational study, you know, like the, the one from Ahmed that we discussed ago and, you know, and Laurie and others, they use the these causal inference methods, which have become very popular. I, I still can't get my head around uh, some of those things. Uh, they're sort of, you know, target trial emulation methods where they take care of, it's not just the confounding uh, aspect where, you know, people talk about observation studies as confounding being the big issue. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, immortal time bias, selection bias, uh, lead time bias, those kind of things are taken care of uh, in, in these uh, sophisticated methodology. And, and they show results which are similar to some extent to stop ACE, but are different than some extent to the stop ACE trial. So, you know, I think Laurie can tell us a little bit more about this. Well, first of all, I want to say that I was never a guide to Edfu. Edfu is a guide for all of us. And so, yeah, so, I mean, it's a great paper and I had very, very little input into it apart from worshipping at it. But I think it's really interesting the way it overlaps with the SOPES findings and kind of brings us bang up to date in how do we now weight high quality observational data against incredibly difficult and expensive and well done. And I don't mean to undermine RCTs in any way, but they have their limitations. Uh, and so, you know, now we have the ability to do observational studies much better. So I think they, they very largely overlap these two studies. There's a slight difference in the patient population. Um, so obviously the observational study is much larger, giving it much greater power to look at uh, all of these events in, in more granular detail. There's a much higher proportion of, of patients with heart failure. So they're, and they're older. I think they're much more representative of the kind of patients that I look after in clinic compared to STOP-ACE, which was a younger group. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the kidney, kidney outcomes and the mortality and cardiovascular outcomes, I think that if you just extrapolated the stop ACE trial to a much larger trial and ran it for a longer period of time, actually they would look really, really similar. And, and again, Ed Fu's study, your study from Jason showed that mortality and cardiovascular events were higher in those in whom RAS inhibition was stopped in advanced CKD. But exactly. the and, and that's... And that, that fits with this, right? Like we saw 108 versus 88. Again, it wasn't, we don't have any stats, but it looks like discontinuating RAS inhibition is harmful in terms of cardiovascular events in patients with advanced CKD. But there was a there was definite decrease in kidney replacement therapy with the discontinuing. Uh, no, so so in, in Ed's study, yeah. there was no difference in the RAS, no, no, no. Uh, sorry, yeah. in, in, in renal replacement therapy. No, 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 no. no. There was, was sorry, not... there was a slight difference. There was a slight difference. 8.3%, that's... One, you know, one in 12 patients, that's, come on. So, so is that, so now would you spin that, the way I would spin that, uh, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Joel and Jordi and, and Laurie, is that in, in the stop ACE trial, you had patients whose GFR was steadily declining. Uh, so that's uh, a population yeah. in whom RAS inhibition would be beneficial, uh, those who have progressive CKD, whereas uh, EDFU's study was all comers. So it yeah. would include uh, patients who, may or may not have a compelling indication to be on RAS inhibition. You know, maybe in those who have a non-progressive CKD, you may not get a renal benefit by continuing RAS inhibition. You may still get a cardiovascular benefit. Yeah. They had 28% heart failure patients in this study. I mean, that's a that's a strong indication for uh, for an ACE inhibition in a pretty significant portion of the population. But, but you yes. see that that's what happens, right? Because of the creatinine bump, despite being having heart failure, people panic and stop the RAS inhibition. We should yeah. not be doing that. 
Yeah. And we, we are should seeing not that a lot be doing that. Clinically. That's right. We should not those, be those doing cardiologists, that. right? Those cardiologists, and and especially, I mean, we have some older data that again is controversial of using imdur and hydralazine instead, specifically in black patients. And I don't think that that is an acceptable alternative per se. We just we don't have a head to head comparison that's high quality to be able to say that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are better in these CKD patients for heart failure. But I think that at least ACE gives us some compelling uh, ability to say it's safe to continue them. Like, please don't switch them to these sort of less, more controversial or less clearly beneficial alternatives. Uh, and so I, I think it's going to be a powerful statement that we'll be able to make. I, I haven't read this food paper. I'm looking at it right now. And, and I just want to I don't understand. Like Laura, you can interrupt Joel, by the way. Laura was asked to talk. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to finish, no finish, finish my thought. I'm going to finish my thought. Is it's clear where you start the clock for people that stop the ACE, right? You start you start the clock when they stop the ACE. But where do you start the clock for the people that are continuous? I don't understand how you do that in the study. Uh, so uh, we we invited you should invite Ed to give a talk on on this topic or Miguel Hernan or or those guys right who do causal inference it's uh, or, or Jordi uh, uh, and we we did uh, we did invite him uh, and uh, he he dumped it down I, and I can put a link to the show notes he made it really simple for the clinicians in the group to understand uh, what did actually work so it's it's sort of like a it's actually like a trial. No, you Let's understand say, uh, that when when Swap says clinicians he means you dummies. <laughs> that's I mean, what he's trying I mean, to say. It's, I was it's looking a at polite Joel. way of saying. That's the polite way of saying, "You idiot." <laughs> we get it, so, Swap. We understand the the derision that you have for us clinicians. Go on. Like you, 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 you pick a moment in time, and the person, you know, whoever is on RAS inhibition is on the RAS inhibition. It's sort of like that. It's like you assume that these observational cohort uh, at any given time. Uh, it, it's like a, you're randomizing them to a trial, and and you. Put people in in this arm or that arm. It's 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 computationally extremely intensive. But I would recommend I'll put that in the show notes. His his rounds makes it very simple to understand intuitively. Though again, I to to understand the stats and how it's actually done is beyond me. But you simulate a trial. That's really in, the simple con, con, like the overarching idea of it is if it's done right you are simulating a trial. I think a lot of people are throwing these terms around now and saying the buzzword emulated trial and not doing it with this much level of caution. Um, but Ed's really did this elegantly. But basically, you're creating a true index date, which is like the randomization date. You're creating a true um, simulation of all of the components of a trial that you would do, including withdrawal, including discontinuation of treatment um, when it might happen in a trial. Um, but you're hoping that by the way you design it and you make careful decisions by the way you design it, that you're not including people that are going to be making differential decisions just based on what they're treated with or not treated with. You're trying to get rid of that confounding by indication for continuing or stopping and really make it where it's all as similar as you can get in the real world to a randomization in like a pragmatic setting where you're telling people to stop or continue it where all else is equal. So the additional bit that I would add, Joel, that I, I found it really hard to get my head around is that there's different ways to emulate a clinical trial. Yeah. Um, and this paper particular, in addition to all the other aspects of emulation, which Geordie's discussed, is this clone sensor and weight approach. And I think that is really hard intuitively to, to understand. But I think it in a standard observational study, you will, for example, be matching a real person with a real person who a real person who stops with a real person who continues. But the difference with what happens in this paper is that you are artificially creating a set of imaginary people who either stop or, or or don't stop. And that's the kind of step beyond what is done in standard observational data. So yeah. it's a, an artificial pseudo population. Yeah. And look that, for that, that word that, pseudo population. Kind of 
<laughs> if you're trying to read a paper and see if they did it correctly, look for terms like pseudopopulation. Look for terms like inverse probability weighting. Those are some of the, the actual terms that are not just buzzwords telling you that the study was actually thought out carefully. It's still really hard. Okay, uh, where are we? Where are we on this trial? Do we have? Are we so, ready so I mean, how do we how or? do we reconcile? Like, rather than say, hey, look, let's look at stop ace. I would say, let's look at stop ace. Let's look at Ed Fu's study, and let's look at the totality of evidence when making decisions. Because you know, one 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 way of arguing would be, oh, stop ace RCT level one A evidence it doesn't matter whether you discontinue or continue RAS inhibition. I think that would be the wrong lesson, right? People often yeah. look at these trials, look at the primary outcome, and say, oh. You know, CKD, GFR of 30, if you want, stop it. If you don't want, don't stop it. It doesn't matter. That's, I think, the wrong conclusion uh, to take from this trial. If you look at, you know, Ed Fu's study and this study and, and put it all together, the way, again, you know, correct me if I'm thinking through this right, is that if you have a patient with progressive CKD uh, who has a reason to be on RAS inhibition, you should try to continue RAS inhibition. Uh, if they have got heart failure, you should con- try to continue RAS inhibition. One minute, Jody. But in case you get hyperkalemia or you know, or, or some other reason that you would discontinue RAS inhibition, it's okay to discontinue RAS inhibition because those kind of patients were not included in in uh, stop ACE. And maybe those patients, if you look at it for study, maybe some of them will start dialysis later because you know you are avoiding that people who are having recurrent AKI say or or hyperkalemia. So it's not that you're, you you sh- must continue RAS inhibition. But I would look at it as try to continue with RAS inhibition in people who have progressive proteinuric CKD declining, you know, GFR, not proteinuric, progressive CKD or have heart failure and a cardiovascular indication for having RAS inhibition. I rambled through that, but I'll let uh, you know, smarter I, 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 people I, be more concise. Well, I, do you want to jump in, Jordi? Go, no, no, say go ahead. I was just okay, going to make so, the comment that to be cautious that Swapnil already made. Like, I think we should definitely be using these more, but I, I also think that we shouldn't swing too far in the other direction because as you had said, this excluded those diabetics who are type 4 RTA, which are such a large portion of who we see. As you said, Jordi, you know, you feel confident in continuing them now, you know, with the totality of evidence. But um, I wonder if you would feel so confident saying that just based on stop ACE without the observational study as well. So we're in this fortunate position that we have two different types of evidence, uh, both with comp- different strengths and weaknesses, which give us an overall picture and I think a really, really important clinical takeaway. But what would we, how would we feel if we only had one of those pieces of evidence? So, you know, I think if we only had stop ACE, we would be really quite concerned about the limitations of the study and the power and the increase in cardiovascular event rates. um, And we wouldn't necessarily know what to do with our patients. And similarly, if we only had the observational data, which is much cheaper to do, much quicker to do, much, well, much more well-powered and and has implications for a huge number of research questions across nephrology and and beyond. Um, Would we trust the observational study alone? And hopefully, I think as observational methods improve, we're getting towards a situation where we can have much more confidence in the observational data, how we persuade clinicians of that and how we really understand when the observational data is robust is tricky. That's the zone we're in at the moment. Yeah, yeah. again, uh, this is sort of uh, like Ed has done this study, of course, and then there was the the other study in the BMJ, which was about initiation of dialysis. And in both these circumstances, fortunately, we had randomized clinical trials against which these observational studies could be uh, calibrated and say, hey, you know, okay, this fits with what the trials have shown. But when we enter an arena where we don't have a randomized control trial, and you do an observational study using these strong methods, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable saying, 
okay, let's embrace the results of this observational study, which emulates, uh, you know, a, a randomized control trial. Uh, and again, that's the the trust piece that you mentioned, Laurie, right? Uh, is how do you do that? And again, Miguel Hernan, uh, I remember uh, during the COVID period, he talked about tocilizumab uh, and he was like, oh, tocilizumab is beneficial. Uh, and this was before the RCT came out, right? And I was rolling my eyes and lo and behold, the RCT came later and it did show that tocilizumab added to steroids is beneficial in, in COVID. But again, this is like, this is a small group of people who know what they are doing. Yeah. Uh, like Jordi alluded to, I'm worried about all these other people, you know, you know, yeah, using the buzzword and, and pushing out papers that will be coming out. So people in the group who are like the nerdy ones that want to sort of gain some of that critical appraisal, I strongly recommend um, there was a JAMA paper published by Miguel Hernan, December 27th, 2022. So this just came out and it's a beautiful overview for the clinician of thinking about a framework of target trials and causal inference and how to think about observational data. So I strongly encourage people to read through that if you have time. But if you don't, I think that's sort of the um, distilled version of it is just think carefully about it. Like if you have questions, if you're thinking, hey, like this isn't being adequately addressed quite transparently, it probably isn't. Usually when these target trials are written out, they are extremely transparent. The goal is like we are doing this step and this step to address this issue. And we say that and we spell that out really carefully when we're doing these. Um, and if it's not being done that way, then it's probably worth questioning and worth really um, scratching your head at. Though I do apologize, Joel, they often have enormous supplements section so you're gonna have to suffer through that oh he, he's a pro now at reading supplements I you know have, I have a See, and, and you that. saw and you saw jordi also mentioned the word clinicians there joel she was looking at you while she was saying that uh, <laughs> but again last last nerdy question i promise now and this is addressed to you know laurie who who and jordi both of whom do a lot of observational uh, studies uh, it's that 20 years ago, people would do, you know, logistic regression and say, hey, you know, this fixes all the problems. And then, you know, you get propensity score matching and they said, hey, this is a better than logistic regression. This fixes all the problems. And now we have got this, you know, target trial emulation methods, causal inference, uh, which is sort of better than, you know, all the other things that we have done in the past. I am persuaded enough that I think, you know, there are all these big database, you know, you churn out papers, you do some, you know, propensity score matching and you publish that. I think we should stop doing that, right? It's, yeah. it's not, they always, they often always have problems with selection bias, uh, you know, lead time bias or, or, you know, healthy worker effect, whatever you want to say, right? Uh, all those if biases are still there. The propensity score matching regression doesn't take care of anything beyond some of the confounding. So we should stop accepting those kind of papers. But, you know, JAMA still publishes them despite them publishing, you know, the, the Miguel Hernan's paper. Is that is that fair to say that we should not really trust the results of these kind of studies? Not the target trial, right? Just the uh, a plain vanilla regression kind of thing. Is this the new standard that we should have this kind of methodology? Laurie's smiling, so I'll let her answer. Or is that too strong a statement? Other, it, needs other, it needs a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think it really depends is the right answer. Yeah. You've, got one, you've got one tweet. Make your answer in one tweet. One tweet on. <laughs> I, think, I think that emulated trial design runs the risk of being the new buzzword that will eventually be uh, be su surpassed by the next thing. But emulated trial design is simply observational research done really well. And I think there is huge publication bias in, in observational research. I think that alarmist results are much more likely to be published in, in yeah. high impact journals, which is really depressing. And I think that a good critical appraisal of the observational research, whatever the methods that went into it, should answer the question of whether it's it's robust and meaningful or not. Um, but but not specifically that the methods used, but the but in the methods 
are improving constantly and we are way better than we were 10 years ago or, or you know, at the start of the study that initiated Stop Ace. Uh, I know that was a tweet thread, sorry. I think it all comes down to the study question also. Um, there are plenty of study questions that are not like related to which medication is best in which scenario, where observational uh, methods, classic ones, lend themselves really well. Uh, and also when you're using it as just hypothesis generating, it's very appropriate, I think, to use a lot of the older, um, the older methods. I think it all comes down to just knowing what your question is and being really clear about what your goals are and what, how you're interpreting your conclusions. And I think a lot of people misstep in each of those areas and that's where we have issues and that's where we've had issues with propensity scores being overstated in terms of what they're showing and things like that. Exactly. Like, so uh, there is the, um, on the fourth drug, right? What should be the fourth drug? Uh, I think Laurie has a paper, Sarah Sinat, I think is the first author where they looked at the fourth drug. Uh, it's a large study uh, from the UK where uh, appropriately they show that uh, MR antagonist are not beneficial, uh, but alpha antagonists, uh, you know, so so doxazosin was superior to spironolactone uh, in, in cardiovascular outcomes. But throughout the paper, uh, they say this is selection bias, right? We are just demonstrating that there is a lot of selection bias in, in this decision-making process. But because you say that, it's published in... I don't know, the European Journal of whatever and not in JAMA. If it was, if you said, oh, lo behold, we are showing that doxazosin is better than spironolactone, it would have been published in JAMA. So, you know, the, the price for a saying being responsible and for, you know, uh, providing your limitation very clearly is that you get published in a lower tier journal yeah. uh, than, uh, than JAMA. I'm, I'm, I'm saying JAMA again and again because they are particularly bad at publishing large, observational, poorly done research. So we should do a whole other podcast on this because we can talk about all the problems with peer review and with editing really this back in. Everything else. Really back in to stop ACE. JAMA just published this target trial emulation, this wonderful review of it, and they rejected the wording of a target trial that we had accepted to one of their sister journals because they said that we'd used too much wording related related to target trials and they didn't like that we were doing that one of the editors not the reviewers the reviewers were like thank you for being so responsible and an editor made us cut the wording so i mean there it's there's a hypocrisy everywhere <laughs> can i tell you in a piece of gossip one of my one of my colleagues has a, an email from uh, jama saying something along the lines of he submitted a study with a p-value of 0.06 and the email from the editor actually says we would have published this result if the p-value was different really that is yeah. bad i mean we know this yeah. happens but to actually say that explicitly is so bad you have yeah to they're just saying the quiet part out loud we they're know, saying please know that it please they're, they're encouraging p-hacking right Hey, you know, run another analysis till you get a P of 049. That's so bad. So uh, final thoughts on this study before we, so we can, we can put this thing to bed. I, I'm going to lead off so you can go make fun of my concept. My, my take is that in the end, stop ACE becomes weak because it ha suffers from the weaknesses of a, a, a classic randomized controlled trial that limited generalizability and it suffers from the weaknesses of a pragmatic trial. In fact, that they participants were not blinded. There was no blinded adjudication. There was no set dosing. And I think both of those work together to give us a sense of what's going on, but it's hard to draw any, any hard conclusions from this, uh, you know, put on top of study, you know, results that were not, that are not, there's no clear differentiation. It's, it's, it's difficult to interpret. Jordy. Yes and no. I think we can take away that it's safe to continue these medications. Uh, and I think we needed that, especially for the people who develop heart failure over time, especially for the people who we're fighting with other providers to continue these meds and they're saying, no, it's unsafe. Now we've got some ammo to support that it's probably not harmful to continue these for sure. Uh, and again, uh, we, you had you had mentioned uh, along with the Swedish data is that the standard of care was moving after the AMED study. 
study in the last 10 years towards, oh, the GFR is 30, stop the ACE inhibition, right? At least that part is very, very clearly put to rest. We should not be doing that. Laura, you get the last word. <laughs> I agree that there are weaknesses to the SOPACE trial, although it was a huge amount of work and, and kudos to the investigators for doing it. Um, but I think that the incredibly fortunate conjunction of the trial with the observational data gives us really strong message for clinical practice that it is absolutely fine and we should definitely be continuing unless there are you know, compelling reasons to stop. Okay, excellent. So we are, uh, thank you, thank you. We're going to, we finish off our podcast with something called uh, tubular secretions where we get to talk about, uh, something that we're doing or listening or talking about. Uh, and I'll let, I'll let Swap lead off and get a sense of what we're doing. Swap, do you have a tubular secretion today? I had nothing else to watch. Uh, uh, you know, the wheel of time was done. You know, Star Wars was done. There was nothing happening. So uh, I was just browsing around and Disney Plus has these, uh, movies. I think all the movies by Wes Anderson, whom I'd heard of, but I had never watched. Uh, so I've been binge watching all of Wes Anderson movies, starting with the Grand Budapest Hotel and uh, and the Royal Tannenbaums and uh, the Darjeeling Limited, the French Dispatch, which is amazing. Uh, so all of them, you know, and, and again, they have a bunch of, you know, standard Bill Murray and Angelica Houston and all those actors, really well done movies, very eccentric, a lot of fun. If you haven't watched any of them, you are in for a treat. Swap, how do you have time to watch movies? <laughs> <laughs> You're always working or reading something or Laurie, tweeting. Laurie, it's because he has no friends, okay? Don't rub it in. You are my friends. We only meet once a month. Jordy, do you have a tubular secretion? Uh, yeah. Uh, so HBO Max has the third season of His Dark Materials out right now, which was um, based off of a series by a British author named Philip Pullman, uh, who it's a wonderful fantasy series based off of Paradise Lost. Um, but it sort of takes a twisted little bit upside down look at the idea of um, the relationship between science and religion a little bit. Um, so it's really quite, it's an interesting young adult style fantasy series. Uh, so if anyone's interested in that style of genre, I strongly recommend it. I named my daughter after the main character. Nice. Outstanding. Laura, you got a tubular secretion for us? No, I have, don't have time to do anything, but it's my news resolution to read more books. So now every evening I'm turning off the TV and reading a book. And what are you reading now? going really well. I'm reading all the women in Lagos. Are, no, nearly all the men in Lagos are mad. Ooh. Nearly all the men in Lagos are mad. Okay. Fiction, nonfiction? Probably fiction. Short, yeah, fiction, short stories. Okay. Cool. Sorry, good. Uh, can I throw in a plug though? Um, it will be out, I think, by the time this podcast comes out. Perry Wilson, um, who's one of a uh, prominent nephrologist on Twitter, he uh, he's at Yale. Um, he has oh, exactly. He has. So, Joel, do you want to tell us about this? No, keep going because I haven't read it yet. I own the book. Okay, yeah, no, I haven't either. I, I didn't. I'm not fancy <laughs> enough to get an advanced coffee like you do. Yeah, um, I have it pre-ordered to read exactly. this book that's coming out January 24th. Uh, how medicine works and when it doesn't. Learning who to trust at, to get and stay healthy. Um, I, he has such great insight into healthcare in general. I can't imagine that the things that he's saying won't be worthwhile. Um, so I strongly urge people to uh, look into reading this book if you have time and interest. Excellent. So I uh, I went to the movies last night. I saw a movie about a donkey called EO. The, movie's called, the title of the movie is EO. It's about a donkey. It's a Polish movie. I, you know, I haven't seen many movies about donkeys, but I would say I like Shrek better than EO. Okay, I'm just going to lay it down there right now. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out. This has been awesome. And uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.